coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And if we bring up anything related to how we think on the Sabbath or how we speak on the Sabbath, then we're immediately accused of legalism, which is why I've got a whole chapter in the book on on what is legalism, Um, and asking that question and exploring the nature of the law in the Christian life. But my question is, the fact that we, we do that really reveals a crisis in our interpretation of the law in the Christian life, because which of the commandments of God can we keep in absolute perfection by simply doing one thing and something that's merely external at that? Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and this is episode number 15. I think I got that right. It's broadcast number 15 of this weekly podcast that we do, and and thankfully we've been able to do it each week, um, recently anyway, and look forward to some really interesting discussions with people coming up over the next few weeks. Today we do have the pleasure of welcoming a man in who has written a book on a subject that I personally um, have felt uh, somewhat disturbed by the attention and the attitudes that some in the church have uh, have uh, displayed about this subject. It is a subject that I think needs to be revisited and discussed more than ever before. But anyway, more about that in a few minutes. Just by way of information and reminding people uh, where we're going, uh, I've been working diligently on a mobile app for the seminary, and hopefully within the next 10 days or so, I will be releasing that to the public. Now, those of you who have the iPhone, I'm sorry to tell you, you'll have to wait two to four weeks after I release it to get approval from Apple so that it can be downloaded to your phone. Can't do anything about it. That's just the way they do things. Android users will be able to get it immediately upon publication. So look for that sometime, hopefully at the end of next week. Stay tuned to our website, confessingourhope.com, for more information about that app. And that, of course, is the other announcement. Visit that website. We have all of the podcasts housed there, as well as information about this podcast, this particular broadcast, as well as others that are coming up in the future and others we've done in the past. There you'll find resources, links to books, material, articles on the subject matter, that was being discussed. So it's a great place to gather resources on those various topics that we talk about on this program. And of course, if you're interested in more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, you can visit us at our website, gpts.edu. And you can always write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. And I try to respond to every email that I do receive. As I indicated, today we'll be talking about a subject that I think the church needs to talk about more and explore more. We'll be talking about the subject of the Lord's Day. My guest this afternoon is Pastor Ryan McGraw, and he is the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Conway, South Carolina. He received his MDiv and his THM from, you guessed it, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. So, Ryan, it's good to have you on the program, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have about, I think, a subject that is of great interest and importance, in fact, to the church. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. 
Ryan, just real quick up front, one of the questions I tend to ask everybody who's written a book, every author that has written a book on whatever subject it may be, is is why did you write the book? I mean, what was the motivating factors that drove you to spend the time, the research to do a book of this nature, especially in a, in a book that is on a topic that has been discussed and talked about and written about quite a bit? Well, uh, the book had its origins in some ways over about a 10-year period. Uh, when I was a young believer, had never heard that there was such thing as a Sabbath, and nobody had ever taught or confronted me with it. And then uh, one day my pastor uh, did confront me with the issue, and not only uh, with the idea of Sabbath-keeping in general, uh, but the idea that the entire day was to be set apart for God's worship in public and in private. And since then, I have been helped by many other books on the subject, but I noticed over the years, talking to people in different churches, that um, people were not being convinced by some of the arguments that were out there, even though they were sound arguments. And I began to think during that period why we seem to be speaking past one another. And so what I've done in the book is I've tried to approach uh, some of the same arguments for, or, or positions rather, in the Westminster Standards uh, from Scripture but from a different angle. And what I mean by that is especially instead of just approaching the Sabbath issue head-on, I've really tried to weave the discussion into how we view the Christian life in general. Uh, some other distinctives of the book is, is it has a very um, distinct experimental or practical style. In other words, a lot of the application would read more like a sermon and a lot of direct address to make it more driving uh, towards the reader. Um, as I mentioned, I focus on various aspects of the Christian life um, and, and weave that into the discussion so that the Sabbath falls into a proper context. I've tried to give fresh argumentation for the same positions that have been argued for in the past. And then the last thing I would add to that is though a lot has been written on the Sabbath, especially in recent years, there are very few things that have come out that are defending a classic Reformed or Puritan position on the Sabbath. Uh, and in particular, when uh, we come to our Presbytery exams, we have men coming as candidates for the ministry in our Presbytery that consistently take exception to our standards teaching on the Sabbath, and every time I ask these men, what have you studied in favor of the confessional view, 100% of the time the answer I've gotten is nothing. Mm. I think that's partly because uh, there's not much out there beyond uh, Dr. Piper's book and a book by Walt Chantry and Ian Campbell and, and a small trickling of literature. Wow, that is uh, quite interesting to hear you say that about men who who are, you know, they're coming to be ministers of the gospel, and while they want to take the exception, that's fine, but it seems a little disturbing to know that they haven't studied the other position. And, and maybe it's because there's not a lot of information out there, as you indicated. But um, 
I don't know that I would necessarily say that's a good enough reason, but be that as it may, um, I think it's important to study this subject. Now, you mentioned that you, you, you had uh, one of your goals in writing this book was to uh, drive towards uh, an application that affects the entire Christian life. And in fact, uh, were not some of these chapters products of your own teaching at your own church? Uh, yes, all of them were at some point, and actually in at least uh, two different churches. Uh, one before I went to seminary in California. Um, I went to seminary in Greenville, but when I was living in California, teaching some of this material there, and uh, and then again, I've I've taught all of these sections and chapters at some point or another in our local church here in South Carolina. Now, you mentioned also um, the Puritan understanding of the Sabbath, which uh, leads uh, someone uh, may lead someone to think that are there other understandings or other perspectives on the Sabbath? And and of course, the answer to that question is yes. Um, could you possibly, in a in very briefly, summarize the the prevailing? Um, perspectives or views on the Lord's Day that sort of have, well, for lack of a better way of expressing it, withstood the test of time? Well, probably the predominating position in evangelical Christianity today is that there is no Sabbath, and that the Sabbath has passed away. Uh, Christ has fulfilled uh, the Sabbath, and Christ himself is our rest. That's a position held by men such as D.A. Carson and others. Uh, I believe he uh, either edited or co-edited a, bo- a book called From Sabbath to Lord's Day that argues to that effect. Mm-hmm. And I think whether a lot of Christians realize it or not, like myself in the early years of my Christian walk, they by default tend to hold that position and view the Sabbath as something Old Testament and they argue that Christ did not repeat it in the New Testament, so it does not continue. My, uh, my book does not address that directly. Uh, it does in an appendix I've included by B.B. Warfield. And I've uh, included the appendix for those who are not convinced that there is such thing as a Christian Sabbath, uh, because very concisely and effectively, uh, Warfield explains the uh, divine authority behind the Sabbath command and why it applies to Christians under the New Testament. Mm. And so I encourage people in the introduction, if they don't come with that conviction to begin with the appendix by B.B. Warfield, and then to go back, uh, because my book really deals with the question of how we should keep the Sabbath and what what shape Sabbath-keeping should take. Now, that being said, the two, the two views that tend uh, to be out there and to, to predominate, especially in Reformed churches, uh, on the one hand are uh, the idea that the Sabbath simply requires cessation from our ordinary labor. In other words, the stress of the commandment falls upon rest, and sometimes, uh, well, one man uh, told me recently, whatever... Uh, seems restful to us is what's required on the Sabbath. We rest from our labors in essentially in order to pursue a predominantly 
bodily rest. And in that view, they'll normally admit that there are duties of attending public worship, but that's not the predominating factor. Uh, the other view, which is the Westminster uh, Standards view, or is often called the Puritan view, is that the purpose of the day is the worship of God. And what that means is that the entire day is to be set apart for the purposes of public and private worship. And anything that does not uh, support that purpose is then uh, laid aside or implicitly forbidden by the commandment. And this is why our catechism, as well as confession of faith, uh, say that not only our worldly employments but our worldly recreations are forbidden on the Sabbath day. And so to illustrate the difference between the two views, I've got a lot to say in the book about the uh, statement concerning worldly recreations. The uh, predominating factor is, do we view the stress of the fourth commandment as being keep it holy or set it apart for worship, or do we stress uh, simply the um, prohibition against labor. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I think uh, you've highlighted an element. I, in fact, I have the confession open in front of me because I wanted to read this for the sake of the listeners who may not be familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, if you're not, I would really strongly encourage you to get a copy. You can get it on the Internet. It's free. Um, you can read it. But we're talking about Chapter 21 in the Confession where it simply says that it is, the, it, is, it is the law of nature that, in general, a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So in his word, by a positive, and, and that's kind of, I think, the essence of what you've just been saying, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. And then it goes on in the next paragraph to talk more specifically about the things that you have just mentioned at the end there. Um, but I think it's interesting how you've put it, the idea of a, a positive commandment. I mean, is it not true that when you were growing up, and even as I was growing up as a Baptist, that we saw Sunday as the things that we could not do, right? We're not allowed to do this. We're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to do this. But, yeah, I think... Sorry, go ahead. No, and I think we we, we turn it back, and in some sense it's backwards. It's, what about the things we can do? Look at the positive aspects of keeping the Lord's Day. Yeah, I think... Um, I don't know where, where exactly to begin with this, because I treat this principle really in every chapter of the book. Right. But this, this positive emphasis needs to be on communion with the triune God, and especially in, uh, in worship, and, and particularly public worship. I think if we approach the Lord's Day and regarded it as a day set apart exclusively for the worship of God, and we simply ask the question, uh, what can I do in my thoughts, in my words, and in my actions today 
to pursue communion with God in, in worship with all of my heart. Uh, well, we find ourselves, of course, uh, maximizing our use of the public means of grace and corporate worship. We would find ourselves taking advantage of Christian fellowship, um, of catechizing our children, of having profitable conversation with friends around our table. Uh, and as we pursue all of these positive features of actively desiring to worship God on the day, we would quickly rule out any time for our worldly employments and recreations. And in some sense, it's, it's a sad fact that the Sabbath as a day for worship is set before us really as, as a feast day and a day that's designed to look forward to communion with God and the saints in heaven. And that pattern of heaven is what I deal with in the last chapter of the book, that we're really to be living uh, the Lord's Day, laying aside all of the good, uh, ordinary tasks we do in this life to exclusively devote ourselves to the worship of God and the fellowship of His people. Now, how would you respond, though, um, uh, Ryan, to the idea that says, well, we're supposed to be living all of our lives in every minute of every day with that mindset? Because that's that, that's a, a comment that I've regularly heard from people who resist what we call the Puritan model of the Lord's Day. And there's several ways to approach that. Of course, the Scripture does command us in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, to do all things to the glory of God. Uh, Colossians 3 uh, commands us likewise to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. But we need to recognize that God's commandments are differentiated. In other words, what God uh, commands us in one circumstance, uh, He may not command in a different circumstance. And, and let me illustrate um, to say that all of life must be lived to glorify God and to honor Him and even to worship Him does not mean that there's no difference between public worship and everything else we do. Uh, I think one example I give in the book is, by implication, the Sixth Commandment, uh, you shall not kill, of course, requires the preservation of our lives, which relates to our health, and other things, and so uh, we are uh, required to bathe properly and to maintain our, our lives in that sense. But of course, uh, if we were to uh, bathe ourselves in the middle of worship on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, uh, that would not only, uh, in the middle of the sanctuary, in the middle of the service, uh, that would not only be completely ludicrous, it would... Uh, it would be immoral. And so there are certain things that we do to the glory of God in some settings we, we don't do in others. Uh, this often comes up in a discussion around Psalm 149. Uh, many will say, well, uh, whatever we do in all of life is to be done to worship God, and therefore uh, whatever we do in all of life we can do in public worship on the Lord's Day. And this is why Psalm 149 mentions dancing in connection to worship. And one thing I usually point out is Psalm 149 says, uh, praise God in the sanctuary, praise God with the dance, 
but it also says, praise God with a two-edged sword in your hands, praise him on your beds. And so in other words, what he's talking about there is that in every aspect of life, we are to live to the praise and glory of God, whether it's going to public worship in the sanctuary, which has its character and its commands, or it's in dancing and rejoicing, whether it's pulling out a sword and going and fighting the enemies in warfare, whether it's going to sleep. We're to do all things to the glory of God, and I don't think anyone who even contends for dancing and worship uh, would be willing to argue for uh, sword fighting and warfare in worship, let alone sleeping. Yet all of those things are there. And so to recognize Scripture itself differentiates these things. Yeah, and I think that's well said and very helpful, in fact, um, for those who may be honestly questioning that kind of... I mean, I think it's a natural question for people to raise, um, and it's good to hear uh, a good pastoral explanation of that, um, using Scripture, of course, to do so. Now, your book opens up where it probably should have, um, by detailing the general importance of the Lord's Day, or the Sabbath, as it's put. Um, just how important is this subject? Well, I think one uh, comment I would begin with is that the importance of Sabbath-keeping is generally undermined, or perhaps a, a better way to say that is it's underappreciated in the Church. I think sometimes we, we act as though... Um, we have uh, different views on the Sabbath, and it really doesn't matter which side of the issue we come uh, down upon. But the thing I, I want to highlight is um, the view that treats the day as set apart for worship is a very robust view that applies the commandment to our thoughts, our words, and our behavior. The default position, even in the Reformed community, that says the only thing I don't, uh, I'm forbidden from doing is going to work like I do during the week, tends to be a very lax view, where people in practice act as though the only thing I have to do to keep the Sabbath in 100% perfection is don't go to work. And if we bring up anything related to how we think on the Sabbath or how we speak on the Sabbath, then we're immediately accused of legalism, which is why I've got a whole chapter in the book on, on what is legalism, um, and asking that question and exploring the nature of the law in the Christian life. But my question is, the fact that we, we do that really reveals a crisis in our interpretation of the law in the Christian life, because which of the commandments of God can we keep in absolute perfection by simply doing one thing and something that's merely external at that? And I think that fact itself realize, should make us realize that what we're dealing with here in questions related to the Sabbath is much more important uh, than simply holding different views of the Lord's Day. The, the thing that I mentioned in the first two chapters uh, that you've alluded to here is that in Scripture itself, there are many reasons given why the Lord's Day or, or the Sabbath is important. Um, I mean, for, for one thing, if I can just list a couple of them briefly, uh, the 
Sabbath is what uh, theologians have often called a creation ordinance. And what that means is that when God created the heavens and the earth, and he made Adam and Eve to walk in fellowship with him in the garden, there are certain ordinances or commandments that he wove into the very fabric and structure of creation. So, for example, in the beginning, he created then male and female. Uh, he created marriage as an ordinance between one man and one woman. Interestingly, in, in Matthew 19, Jesus bases his argument against divorce upon that principle. Back in Genesis 1, in the beginning it was not so. God created them, uh, one man, one woman, what God joins together in marriage, uh, man shall not separate, and the two become one flesh. So there's something special and important about these creation ordinances. Not only marriage, but labor is uh, created before the fall, and the Sabbath as well. Uh, in other words, the Sabbath is given to mankind before there's any such thing as sin or redemption uh, in the history of the world. So this is something that is woven into the very fabric of the created order, and to reject or to neglect the Sabbath, in a certain sense, is acting as though we're, we're attempting to overturn the whole created order of God. Uh, later on in Scripture, the Sabbath is given as a sign of God's covenant relationship with his people. It's singled out as a peculiar blessing uh, that points to all of the blessings of the covenant of grace in Christ. Uh, it comes up frequently throughout the Old Testament in particular. I've got the, uh, the numbers listed there in, in the first chapter, but especially in the prophets. One thing that I think is peculiarly important is that uh, the Sabbath command is particularly attached to the exile in the Old Testament. Now, the covenant blessings and curses of Leviticus 26 are prefaced uh, by the command against idolatry as well as by the Sabbath. As though these two commands are going to stand out of being uh, of holding special importance mm -hmm. in light of the covenant blessings and curses. Then you see uh, often in Scripture the people being castigated for their Sabbath breaking. Uh, you see uh, in Second Chronicles in the last chapter the author actually says that the reason why they went into 70 years exile is because those were the number of years that they had violated their Sabbaths. Um, we see later in Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah rebuking the people for buying and selling on the Sabbath day and, um, and telling them that essentially, do you not know this is why we went into exile in the first place? And then lastly, uh, if the Lord has given us the Sabbath for our good and to be a day of worship and direct communion with him and his people, then it's really a matter of great ingratitude uh, on our part not to rejoice in the day and really to covet the time of the day. And so sometimes we treat the Sabbath as it's a peripheral issue, but the question that I try to raise in those first two chapters is, uh, do the scriptures teach, the teach that the Sabbath is a peripheral issue? Mm. 
just a cursory glance at the texts that are, are uh, in the Bible on this issue shows us that God himself placed a very high importance to the Sabbath. And, and I know I said that was my last comment, but just one more thing. Uh, the, the Puritan authors tended to um, regard violating the second commandment regarding the manner of God's worship and the fourth commandment regarding the days, the day of God's worship as the precursor to complete apostasy in the church. Mm. Yeah, and, and it, I found the first two chapters of the book very helpful in, in somewhat laying the foundations, because then you move into chapter three with to deal with a, uh, what I would call a, a classic passage on the subject, and that is, of course, Isaiah 58. And you actually devote two whole chapters to the Isaiah 58 text, um, first by discussing some of the presuppositions of Isaiah 58. And then you come back in chapter four, and you come at it in a different way. Um, I don't mean different in the sense of strange. I mean different in the sense of different, that um, perhaps ways that we haven't really considered or thought about it in the past. I mean, let, let's start with what you did in chapter 3. I mean, what are some of the basic points that you're trying to make with Isaiah 58? And for those who are listening to this, the verses we're primarily dealing with are verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah 58. Um, but really, in the book, um, the author goes into much more detail um, as it pertains to the whole chapter itself. But, um, Ryan, maybe just briefly highlight for me some of the issues that you raise out of chapter 3 with the, the idea of these presuppositions that we tend to bring to this passage. Sure. Um, as, we, as we think about Isaiah 58, we need to recognize that usually most practical discussions about Sabbath-keeping revolve around uh, the two verses mentioned, verses 13 and 14. And this, uh, I, I won't uh, go through all the details of the text, but there are specific phrases that come up uh, for discussion, like the text tells us that we're not to do our own ways or our own pleasure. We're to delight uh, in the Lord. We're to turn our foot from the Sabbath and, and so on. And typically you'll get one group of people that will say uh, doing your own ways and finding your own pleasure simply refers to seeking profit by commerce uh, because that seems to be the context in the first part of the chapter which is fasting and there you see the people instead of fasting properly are abusing their their laborers and seeking their own gain and their own ways and their own profit uh, the other side interprets the uh, the commands and prohibitions there in terms of avoiding, as the confession or catechism rather says, uh, all uh, thoughts, uh, words, and works concerning our worldly employments and recreations. And uh, one point that I try to make is um, the primary reason for our different exegesis in this chapter is based upon the assumptions or presuppositions about the Sabbath that we bring to the chapter. 
And what I've tried to do, especially in chapter 58, is try to demonstrate what kind of presuppositions or assumptions Isaiah himself had about the nature of the day before looking at the details of Isaiah 58, 13, and 14. And in particular, just to mention two examples, in Isaiah 56 as well as in Isaiah 66, there are references to the Sabbath, uh, and both passages are clearly pointing uh, to the time of the coming of Christ and the blessings of the gospel upon uh, the world. And the Sabbath is singled out as a mark of godliness in both cases. And what's significant is the only activities that are mentioned in both of those chapters surrounding the Sabbath are activities that relate to God's worship, especially public worship. And we need to remember that the prophets uh, did not uh, legislate, they did not come up with God's laws, but they gave their instructions based upon earlier revelation. Uh, one thing we often forget is uh, that though we, we focus on how the New Testament authors used the Old Testament, the Old Testament authors also used the Old, Test Old Testament, and they used prior uh, sections. And, and it's clear from the different parts of Isaiah that Isaiah's presupposition is the purpose of the Sabbath is worship, uh, not just a prohibition against labor. Uh, one, one note about the fasting uh, section in verses 1 through 12, often people puzzle over what the connection is between uh, fasting and abusing laborers and the Sabbath. Why does Isaiah seem to throw in the Sabbath at the end of the chapter? Well, I think the answer is that the role of the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments is to be a subject heading of all sins and duties of like kind. So, for example, uh, Leviticus 16 and 23, you have a list of feasts uh, and, and uh, holy days beginning with the Day of Atonement and then including the other festivals in the religious calendar. It's very interesting that each of them is referred to as a Sabbath. And it's as though the the weekly Sabbath, which is devoted to God's worship, becomes the blueprint or the pattern upon which all of these other feast, feast days or some, sometimes fast days uh, and festivals are, are patterned after. And so, uh, in, in other words, um, the Sabbath is the fundamental principle all of these other days are derived from it and, and modeled after it. And this is why uh, the people in Isaiah's day are pointing to their fasting and wanting to recommend their religious devotion to God based on their fasting. But then Isaiah says, in, in essence, you've been focusing on your fasting and you've been doing that wrongly. Well, here's how to fast correctly. And by the way, here's the deeper principle that stands behind this. And, and your Sabbath keeping is really what you should be focusing on instead. Yeah, that's well said. And, and, and I remember um, actually um, 
sitting under a man um, who is a very good friend of yours, Ryan Speck, who was my associate pastor up in Emmanuel, and he preached through this passage in Isaiah 58. And, you know, I don't know if he read your book before he preached the sermon or you guys just think so much alike, because as I was reading the chapters, I was being drawn back to the sermon he preached on this passage time and time again. And honestly, never really uh, looked at this passage in that way, never really considered the deeper implications of what's being taught here. Um, you know, just took it at, serv- at face value, and that was it. And um, for instance, one of the things that you say in the book that I think is, you know, remarkable, um, simple, but remarkable, was in chapter four, right in the beginning, where you talk about the prohibitions and the requirements that Isaiah puts down here in these verses. And one of the things that Isaiah says is not doing thine own ways. And then you simply say the first thing to note about this phrase is that Isaiah did not command the people to abstain from what was inherently sinful on any day. This was obvious and did not need to be said. Sin is sin every day, and prohibiting sin has nothing distinctly to do with Sabbath-keeping. Now, I think that's, a, it, it, you know, on the surface you read, you read that and you say, well, no kidding, that's obvious. But how much has that been turned on its head in our understanding of that passage in today's world? I mean, it's almost as if it's been removed and, and without deeper thought to the reality that that's not what Isaiah is saying. He's not saying that you can don't sin on these days, but you refrain from sinning on these days. That doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent. And so there's a greater emphasis here distinctly focused on what he's pro- prohibiting, it seems, in this passage and then showing um, elsewhere where you even go on to say other things such as nor finding thine own pleasure, and then um, I think there was a third one, nor speaking thine own words. And um, and we could do a whole interview on the last one about conversations that we have on the Lord's Day with other people um, and those kinds of issues. But um, anyway, I think that's good, and I think it's important for us to, to think more carefully through what is, I, I don't know if it's the classic passage on the subject, but it's certainly got to be up there in the top five passages that people tend to ter- turn to when they're discussing the subject. And I've yet to really read, and maybe you have, but I have yet to read a really good defense for an anti-Puritan or anti-confessional position uh, over against Isaiah 58. Have you come across anything that, that attempts to unseat the, the Puritan understanding of the Sabbath with Isaiah 58? Well, typically, as, as I mentioned, there, the different interpretations are going to be governed uh, by how we already view the Sabbath, and so typically uh, the exegesis on the other side is coming with the assumption the purpose of the day is cessation from labor, and they're going to explain every single one of those terms, such as doing your own pleasures and your own ways, as uh, as your weekly labor, and and that's all that we're referring to. Right, and I think in fairness, though, I mean, wouldn't it also wouldn't it be safe to say that that we we all tend to bring our I mean, I want to be careful how I put this, but I think it's it's a fact nonetheless that we all tend to bring our biases to the equation, whether whether we're studying the Lord's Day uh, in Scripture or whether we're studying some other issue. Um, is that not always a, a, a tension that we have to wrestle with? I think that not only is is that something that's unavoidable for us, but it's it's necessary for us to come with our presuppositions. 
sometimes our presuppositions need to be corrected, and, and obviously that's what I'm trying to do in these two chapters, uncover presuppositions, kind of uh, put them on display, examine them at their heart, and see which one is more biblical in the broader context of Scripture. But in some sense, we do this all the time. Uh, typically, when we pick up a Bible commentary, the first thing we want to know is, uh, well, what does the author believe? Is he Calvinistic? Is he Arminian? Um, uh, whatever else there may be. Is he liberal? Does he even hold to the authority of the Bible? And what that uh, man believes before he writes his commentary determines whether we want to read the commentary. And so I think we recognize that there's a certain legitimacy uh, to coming with, with some presuppositions to the text of Scripture. And, and just to put it differently, the only thing that, that, that says or that affirms is that you're taking what you've already learned from other parts of the Bible to keep reading the Bible. And there's going to be a, a give and take back and forth. We constantly need to examine and uh, question the presupposed theology we bring to the text, but then we also need to read the text in light of our overarching understanding of the Bible. And those two things are going to feed one another back and forth. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do here is, um, is halt the process of discussion about the exegesis of the text and ask the question, what are the proper biblical presuppositions about the Sabbath we need to bring to the text? Well, how would you answer, though, the question, I mean, I agree with everything you just said, but, but I'm thinking about people on the other side of the line, maybe, who are saying, well, you, arose, you came to these conclusions about the Lord's Day at some point in your Christian experience, because, and now when you go to these texts of Scripture, this is what you obviously see. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that's a, a fair accusation in some sense, but it's also one that, again, is, is unavoidable. I was just reading a, a scholarly work on Richard Baxter and John Owen recently, and clearly uh, the author had a bias in favor of of uh, Baxter's positions and not Owen's. And when he came to discuss the matter of uh, limited atonement or the idea that Christ died for the elect only, uh, the author says, well, Owen seems to be forcing every single passage of Scripture to fit his view. I think that's always going to appear that way to the other side because we recognize when we've adopted a fundamental position the text of Scripture has to harmonize in some way. And so an Arminian is going to harmonize the text with his view, and the Calvinist is going to harmonize the text with his view. Now the issue is that neither one of us has the right to simply twist texts of Scripture and cram them into our view. And this is where this uh, uh, push and pull or give and take process a biblical interpretation comes back into play, uh, that I'm constantly searching the scriptures honestly and putting the pieces together, correcting and building my theology upon it. And, and let me again just illustrate with, with the example of Calvinism. Many people come to the viewpoint known as Calvinism with a strong view of God's sovereignty, mm -hmm. 
that the election of the effectual operation of the Spirit in the hearts of sinners, his irresistible grace, in other words. And often when people come to that viewpoint, the default position is to assume that man has no responsibility. And then when he keeps reading the Bible, he can do one of two things. Uh, he can either force and cram the scriptures about human responsibility into his falsely preconceived notion about God's sovereignty, or he can add those scriptures to his views about God's sovereignty and understand how they fit together and how they harmonize. And in other words, the question that we're asking with the Sabbath is really no different than the questions we ask in interpreting the Bible in light of any doctrine. Well, let me. I don't want to run too far afield on this philosophical discussion on presuppositionalism, but I do want to ask this one question because as you were talking, this thought occurred to me. While we always approach Scripture with a presupposition, I mean, I, I think that's unavoidable, and we do do that. Um, for me, the question is how was my presupposition formed in the first place? I mean, it didn't come from a vacuum. I mean, right. and something, something did something to my thought process. Something impacted my thinking that caused me to begin to develop these presuppositions, if you will. And then we go from there. I mean, in other words, I don't come to the Bible a blank slate and say, oh, look, the Lord's Day, and then I end up with the regurgitation of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Something imp- impacted me prior to that point. And and yeah. it, that may not be a negative thing. And I think the the opponents of this the Lord's Day issue, in some sense, use that argument or any argument on any doctrinal issue as as what they think is some kind of a weapon or some kind of uh, point scoring tactic that that somewhat um, disarms me in my exegetical understanding of a text. I think what we we need to recognize here is um, every every Christian's experience is is going to differ as far as how we come to our our fundamental system of Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. If I can just use a personal example, when I was converted uh, near the age of seventeen, I came out of a uh, unbelieving background and had no knowledge of the Bible whatsoever. And so when I came to church, um, I'm, I'm asking people basic questions such as, who is the Apostle Paul? Uh, and I have no idea uh, about any of the details of Scripture. And so in that early environment, the church was Arminian and dispensational in, in its theology. Mm. So I came uh, inheriting that theology in some sense through the teaching of the church. Uh, in my own personal growth, in the Lord's good providence and wisdom, largely through studying the Westminster Standards, I began to search the scriptures, and of course I was reading through the whole Bible regularly and prayerfully as well, and began to see that the things that I was reading there in the Standards matched what I was reading in the whole Bible better than what I had already believed. Well, it didn't mean that overnight suddenly I overturned my whole system of theology that I inherited from the church as a new Christian. What it did mean is piece by piece, uh, one thing began changing at a time until eventually 
um, over the years and even imperceptibly. I've, I've uh, picked up a completely different uh, system of theology. And I think that's how we correct things. When, when, we, uh, when we're confronted with an issue like the Sabbath, and let me, uh, let me tie this into the book again here, if, if we're confronted with an issue like the Sabbath, and one of us is assuming that the only thing I, I need to do is, is don't go to work on the day, and I've, I've kept the day in perfection, essentially. I don't think anyone wants to say that, but that's the practical outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm saying we devote the time in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds to public and private worship. We need to recognize there's, there's a whole system of how we view the Christian life that stands behind this. And this is really what I'm getting at in the book, is to reevaluate our, our Christian living, our personal holiness, and our communion with, with God in general. Are we living all of life to the glory of God? It's one thing to say that, but are we living our lives subject to the law of God? Do we recognize that the law of God, not only the Sabbath, but every law of God, applies to our thoughts, our words, and our works, applies to ourselves personally, as well as to our interaction with other people and our relationship to other people. So when we say, for example, that we shouldn't um, go to a store on Sunday or cause somebody else to work on the Lord's Day, uh, we're applying a principle that's no different than Jesus saying being reconciled to your brother is one way of fulfilling the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Um, in other words, every single commandment is expansive. As, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, uh, your commandments are exceedingly broad. That aspect of the Christian life. So there's another factor in our system of thinking that comes into play. Um, also, how we view the relationship of, of this life uh, to heaven, you know, and our, our heavenly mindedness. I think that a lot of Christians have a very uh, worldly view of heaven, and in some sense, their conception of heaven is that it's everything that they would ever want and anything that they would ever want to enjoy, uh, the proverbial golf course in the kingdom for some people. And I think when we realize that the New Testament picture of heaven is worshiping God day and night without ceasing and communion with the Trinity and with the people of God, all we're saying about the Sabbath is that we're trying to imitate heaven on earth for one day a week. measure, mm. And that's why I think all of those things, the law and... Um, heaven uh, reveals to us that the general problem of the church today uh, is is a worldliness. There's a an apathy to spiritual things. There's a conformity to the world, and usually that worldliness is justified by saying, uh, "Well, I do all things to the glory of God," and the attitude is. Um, as long as I uh, say that I'm doing what I'm doing to the glory of God, I basically do whatever I want in life. I'm not subject, practically speaking, to the law of God. 
I'm not living a heavenly-minded life. I'm not living as a pilgrim and stranger in this earth. And this is why I think the Sabbath becomes a window uh, to cause us to evaluate our, our entire system of doctrine as it relates to experimental piety or practical Christianity. Yeah, and you deal with this more towards the end of the book. Um, interestingly, you have a chapter in here on worldliness, which I don't think one would expect, frankly, uh, on a book on the Lord's Day, um, though I think it's appropriate and necessary, and as it turns out, um, given your your goal and aim of writing the book in the first place. In other words, capturing the whole essence of the Christian life and makes a picture, as you said, a, a mirror into the life of the believer and how it's played out by their attitudes on the Lord's Day. Um, so I'm not surprised to see it, though, before I opened the book up for the first time, I would have been surprised to hear that it was there. It just doesn't seem like it goes together in general treatments of the Lord's Day. The other aspect of the book that I think is very interesting is in Chapter 8, where you deal with some general practical observations and what you just captured are some of those and what you were saying a few minutes ago, and I think it's a great chapter. I'm probably worth the price of the book, actually, um, to read through that chapter and see, really, the synthesis and in, in, in the sum of what you're saying throughout this whole book, because you all but say that pretty much up front in the chapter, um, and then you go through some very detailed aspects there. And then you raise the question in Chapter 9, which is almost inevitably the case whenever we deal with the subject of the Lord's Day, and that's the question of legalism. So let's spend a few minutes there, and I guess the, the, the natural question to ask anybody up front, because I've been accused of being a legalist for different reasons, not just necessarily the Lord's Day. Perhaps you've been accused of being a legalist or holding to legalism in some capacity. What is legalism? I think people do not understand what that is. I think... Legalism is one of the most commonly used uh, theological terms and one of the most improperly used terms. Uh, what we recognize with the term legalism and what everybody who uses the term holds in common is legalism is some sort of abuse of law, uh, whether that be God's law, whether that be adding man-made traditions to the law, whether that be abusing the law at a fundamental level, and by fundamental I mean uh, believing that I'm, I'm made righteous in the sight of God by law-keeping, whether in whole or in part, rather than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, that kind of abuse of the law or legalism is fatal. But when we talk about issues like the Sabbath, uh, presumably we all agree that we're justified by faith alone uh, in Christ alone, by His righteousness, and not by works of righteousness which we have done. And if we come with that presupposition and, and we ask the question, what is legalism, we're really talking about an abuse of the law in, in a, a practical sense. In other words, abusing the law in terms of Christian living. Usually, when people accuse somebody of being a legalist, sim they simply mean that person tries to observe the law of God carefully or strictly. Uh, for instance, the Westminster Larger Catechism has a very 
lengthy treatment of the Ten Commandments and all of their implications, and it even makes up in some respects the bulk of the Catechism. And many people in recent years have said the larger Catechism has a legalistic position on the law of God, and what they mean is it's too detailed. I think we need to get away from that type of thinking, uh, one, because it's sufficiently vague uh, on, on what we're actually talking about and what we think the standard for personal holiness and conformity uh, to the image of God should be. Uh, one way that I define legalism in a practical sense is legalism is any standard for obedience that is not identical with God's law. And what I mean by that is if, like the Pharisees, we add the traditions of our fathers or whatever other man-made traditions we have to the law of God, we have abused the law, we have violated it, in effect set it aside for our own man-made traditions. In fact, mm-hmm. Jesus in Matthew 15 tells those kinds of legalists, uh, quoting Isaiah, in vain do you worship me, in vain do you worship God, uh, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So that type of legalism adds to the law of God. But the other side of that is that we're just as guilty of legalism if we subtract from the law of God, uh, because essentially we're still abusing the law. God has given us his law as a perfect pattern for our sanctification. And if we subtract from that law, we cannot do so without substituting it with something man-made. And usually we try to substitute the law of God with some sort of uh, easier principle that we think we can achieve more readily. And the problem here is that we remember the law of God is unkeepable for sinners. The law of God must convict you of your sin must drive you hopeless to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that unless he washes you with with his blood, you will die. But then the next step of that is the Holy Spirit is conforming you to the image of Christ. Christ is a walking transcript of that law that condemned you. Absolute extensiveness, it's perfection that that applies to your thoughts, your words, your deeds, and every aspect of your life and all your relations. The same law was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and the Spirit is not conforming us as believers to some lesser uh, mitigated man-made law or uh, the law of God with subtracted portions but he is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, which means we need to love the law of God in all of its extensiveness and recognize that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So by the power of the Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, we do the Father's will uh, by uh, pursuing the law of God. Well, I think that's well said and and, an important aspect to properly understanding what legalism is and isn't. And so I would commend to the listeners to get a copy of this book and especially read that chapter because the whole chapter is devoted to the subject. And and just leafing through it, there's some well-stated elements in here that would be worthy of further thought and discussion. Real quickly, Ryan, the last chapter of the book deals with the eternal Sabbath, which is um, 
of course, brings up the Hebrews passage where those who object to a continuing or abiding um, element of the commandment to keep the the, the seventh day holy um, point to as their what they would consider their um, end all be all discussion that that really all the Sabbath was was a a type of the Sabbath, the, the true Sabbath to come, that is, of course, our eternal rest in heaven. And I love the way you deal with this chapter because it seems that you, while you agree with that at some level, um, you also say that it's not just pointing to and only to heaven as the eternal rest, which it is, but that, as you said in the beginning of the chapter, if we were to spend one day in seven in another culture, we would eventually by default, start taking away pieces and elements of that culture, um, probably without even knowing it. So maybe speak a little bit to this last chapter and, and, and what you're trying to convey here. As we, um, as we think about the, um, the Hebrews 4 passage in particular, which, uh, which describes uh, first the original purpose of the Sabbath, pointing to the eternal rest God promises. Uh, and then the next stage of the argument there is that uh, Joshua, who brought the people into the land, did not bring them into the rest. In other words, the rest that the Sabbath pointed to was not the land of Canaan, but something bigger and better. And then the next stage of the argument is Jesus Christ has come, and he's accomplished perfect redemption uh, for us so that we can enter into that eternal rest. And some will say there, uh, because the Sabbath was pointing to the eternal rest of God and Jesus Christ purchased that rest for us, then we no longer keep the Sabbath, but we simply enter into the eternal rest. There's no doubt in my mind that especially in verse 11, we are exhorted in the context to enter into the eternal rest of God, namely heaven. But what's often neglected is that the author is arguing that the Sabbath pointed to that eternal rest in the Old Testament, that Christ purchased eternal rest for us, and through Christ we're striving to enter into that rest, does not negate the fact that the Sabbath still points to that rest. Uh, in other words, if anything, in Jesus Christ and celebrating his resurrection every first day of the week, we have more cause to eagerly anticipate that rest than the Old Testament saints did, hmm. because it has even fuller significance for us. And one thing uh, I've also stressed in that last chapter is it's, it's common in many authors to use the Sabbath as something that points to heaven. Uh, what's not common is to look at the New Testament description of heaven and view the Sabbath as a type and shadow of it. And what I mean is, uh, just like the types and shadows of the Old Testament were patterned after the work of Jesus Christ, uh, so the, the Sabbath is patterned after heavenly activity. And uh, with, with the Old Testament types and shadows, sometimes I think the default position is the, the people think the sacrifices and the feasts and everything set a context for what redemption would look like. And then somehow Jesus Christ came and fulfilled all of those things. 
sense, but we need to begin the other way around. From eternity past, in the counsel of the triune God, uh, God determined that his son would come and be born of the woman and purchase redemption for his people. When God gave the sacrifices and the types and shadows in the Old Testament, he did so because Christ was the pattern. And those things were pointing uh, to the reality that was coming. And so when we look at the Sabbath, we need to remember, as I said earlier in the interview, that we're, we're really trying to live as though we've set one foot in heaven uh, every first day of the week. Hmm. That's well said. We're running long on time. Uh, just real quick, do you have any resources you might suggest to the listeners on the subject of the Lord's Day or something relevant to it that they could get, get their hands on, read more about, of course, other than the book you wrote, <laughs> uh, but something else well, I, as well. Uh, I recommend this book. Um, <laughs> Gee, I, I can't imagine why. <laughs> not not to uh, simply promote my own work, but I do believe the Spirit of God uh, blessed me in writing this book, uh, I think in some ways beyond my natural ability, and hopefully uh, identified issues that were significant for the church, and I wouldn't have written it if I if I didn't believe it was important, and we're praying for the Lord's blessing upon it. Uh, other books that I've found very useful have been uh, Dr. Piper's book on the Lord's Day. Dr. Mm-hmm. Piper deals more extensively with why the Sabbath continues into the New Testament period than I do. Um, and towards the end of the book, he goes into more extensive. Um, practical how-to details mm-hmm. and suggestions on what to do with children and that sort of thing. I do that as well, but what I've tried to do is approach all the same material with different arguments and in a fresh way. Um, another another book I'd recommend uh, recent would be um, uh, Ian Campbell has written a, a very useful book, and uh, I'm trying to see it on my shelf here. It's called On the First Day of the Week. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of Ian Campbell's book is he begins with Genesis and he unfolds the biblical theology of the Sabbath uh, throughout the Bible in a historical sense. He doesn't go as well into the practical details uh, and certainly doesn't go into the underlying issues in the Christian life uh, like I have in this book. But for the exegetical work, it's, it's outstanding. Um, Walt Chantry's book, uh, uh, Call the Sabbath to Delight, is, is a blessing as well. Um, the only other things I'll mention are um, uh, with some older works. If, uh, if hearers out there are willing to take the time to plow through John Owen's uh, volume on the Sabbath, which I believe is volume two of the Hebrew set, it is uh, outstanding, and in some ways, I feel like um, the work that I've done, the more I reflect upon it, uh, really almost everything I write uh, has, has Owen's fingerprints on it somehow or somewhere. And Owen does a wonderful job getting into the underlying issues and asking basic questions that, that will answer other questions. Mm. Well, yeah, this interview wouldn't really be complete if you didn't mention or suggest or recommend John Owen in some capacity. I think that's 
Why don't you tell everybody why? And this way we'll, we'll not leave everybody hanging as to the reason. Other than the fact that you named one of your children after John Owen, besides that reason. Uh, I was about to say, other, other than the fact that our firstborn son was named after John Owen, uh, I'm working gradually on a uh, Ph.D. project on John Owen's views on communion with the Trinity and public worship. And, yes, that should be um, uh, looking forward to that work being done. I'm sure you're looking forward to it being done as well in some sense. So um, anyway, any other resources, uh, Ryan, before we close? Um, I, I think you've given everybody a good I especially like the the aspect of Ian Campbell's, you know, he sort of takes the biblical theological perspective more so than the practical side where Dr. Piper kind of mixes that up a little bit. Um, Yeah, Uh, Dr. Piper does more systematic uh, theology, does do exegesis, but uh, Ian Campbell is unique in in that it's a full biblical theological approach through the whole Bible. It's on different portions of the Bible and what they have to say Mm -hmm. about the Sabbath. Yep. And... um, and then I've dealt with it more from uh, an experimental piety aspect in weaving the doctrine into the whole Christian life. There, there are many Puritan books that are useful um, on the Sabbath, and um, there's uh, uh, one, I think it was by uh, Caudry and, and somebody else that um, uh, Reformation Heritage Books has just reprinted. It was a book written by one of the Westminster Divines, uh, Thomas Shepherd, who, Shepherd, who founded Harvard University, wrote uh, Theses Sabbaticae. It's got a uh, Latin title, but the book is written in English, and it's a very excellent treatment. Uh, and then you can find uh, Baxter's work on the Sabbath. There's lots and lots of good uh, Puritan materials on this, but uh, fewer contemporary treatments that at least come from the Westminster standpoint. Mm. Well, this has been a good discussion, and I and I hope that people have listened to this program and they're evaluating their Christian life. And I think as the author really wanted to convey, I think, in this book, is that this issue isn't just about the Lord's Day. You know, the issue is bigger than that. And... Um, and hopefully by listening to this program, getting a copy of the book, or thinking through it, looking through Scripture, most importantly, and examining things there in light of how we approach that one day in seven that God has graciously given us. Um, you know, I mean, I, I often think of it things in a very practical way. Um, it helps me understand things better. Um, but the reality is that if you just look at the Lord's Day from the aspect of work, I mean, the reality is we'd all work ourselves right into the grave if we had the opportunity. And um, the Lord knows our weaknesses and give us, gives us this one day in seven to, to step aside from that. But, but that's not the emphasis, of course, and the book doesn't really come at it from that angle. But I think, you know, the wisdom in the Lord's day is beyond our understanding. But when you really think about it and you realize just how easy it is is for us to busy ourselves seven days a week with all kinds of things. Um, there's, a, there's a significant level of wisdom there, um, but it, it, it's bigger than that. And I think this book, if you read it and, and digest it and think through some of the things, you may not agree with everything that's said. Um, I don't think the author would be bothered if you didn't. But the aspect is, is that 
you know, examine and think it through and carefully look at your own Christian experience, your life seven days a week in light of it, not just your life on the Lord's Day on Sunday. And I think you'd be blessed and benefited, benefit from it greatly in that regard. Ryan, I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy with uh, all kinds of things going on down in Conway, and, and um, but I do appreciate your time being on and your labors. Um, we'll have to get you back on to talk about your newest book. Um, I think it's titled Good and Necessary Consequence. Um, so maybe we'll have you on at a later date when life is a little saner in every capacity and talk about that book as well. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Great. You have been listening to a discussion with Ryan McGraw. He's the pastor of Grace Fellowship. Or, yeah. <laughs> Grace Presbyterian Church. Don't ask me where that came from. Grace Presbyterian Church in Conway, South Carolina, graduate of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and he's written a couple books now. The one we've been talking about is his book on the Lord's Day. Uh, and it's titled The Day of Worship, Reassessing the Christian Life in Light of the Sabbath. And I will make all these resources that he's mentioned available on the website, confessingourhope.com, as well as a link to this book if you want to get a copy of it. Um, I know we sell it here at the seminary. It's not expensive. I have a copy of it, and I don't have any money. So it's not that expensive. So um, get a copy of it, read it. Uh, and 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 think about some of the things that are said in it. Coming up in, in future days, I, I don't exactly know. I'm looking at my schedule right now. I, I don't, well, in some sense, I control my schedule. For those who wonder how I do all this, I don't do it alone. I have a, a, a man who's also a student here at the seminary who helps me line guests up. In fact, he primarily does that. Um, and he just throws them in this calendar that we have and I try to figure it out, and I'm looking at it right now. I'm staring at it, and I'm not exactly sure I know what's going on, but that's not a big surprise um, for those who've heard me many times in the past. Um, but I think what's coming up in the very near future is an interview with Kevin Back- Backus on conflict resolution. Now, uh, this summer, the seminary is um, doing a summer institute. It's a week-long institute, and the subject of the institute this summer um, this year is on conflict resolution, and Kevin Backus is going to come on the program, Lord willing, to talk about that conference as well as the subject in general. Um, and so look forward to that. I'm not exactly sure of the date yet, but I'll figure that out eventually. And then after the PCA General Assembly, um, I will be interviewing – uh, Richard Phillips at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville and basically doing a summation or a summary of General Assembly. So we'll be talking about some of the issues that, that came up at General Assembly and the things that were done. And so we'll get his perspective on the events of the PCA General Assembly that's going to be happening now here in a few weeks. So those are the two things that I, I'm pretty sure are happening in the next few weeks. So stay tuned. As usual, you can get all the information about what's going to happen on this podcast at Confessing Our Hope. Dot com. So go there, read the information. I am constantly trying to keep it updated. I'm a little behind, so bear with me, but I'm working diligently to get everything up to date, including information about this discussion on the Lord's Day as well. So until next time, when we talk with Kevin Backus, Lord willing, and I don't know when, but it's sometime in the future, the near future, we thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.